1: Comment and share. Uh, The discount code is webinar. So You just type webinar in and you get a $50 discount on your membership to the healer training, uh, healer certified training community. Another thing to mention is that we are having a Labor Day sale on our CBD products. This will be CBD and CBDA. It's a 30% discount site-wide. So that's healercbd.com. Just put in the coupon code labor day with no space and that starts tonight and will go through monday so maybe i'll just type it here labor day um healer okay so now you've got those discount codes and then the last uh announcement is my book which i don't have a copy of sitting right here but i i should and um if any of you oh look good thank you Oh, uh, well, look, everybody's got it. All right, so you all have the book, you don't need it. Um, but what I want to suggest is that,, yeah. Uh, so this was a book that I uh, came out at the end of June. It's something I'm extremely proud of. I think it's a great resource. I, um, it's written for the clinician. It's not really translated to lay terminology, which is something that I strive to do for all of the material that we're going to present tonight and all the material that's in the healer training curriculum. All of that should be accessible to anyone, whether you're a patient or a physician or anything in between. The book itself is more geared towards clinicians. And so if it's not a good fit for you and you still want to support me or help the book, uh, what I would uh, encourage you to consider doing is buying a copy of it for a clinician that would benefit from having this information. There are so many doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners and PAs and Uh, other clinicians out there that really have no clue about cannabis and for them to receive this book from one of their patients, I suspect they're gonna crack it open and be impressed. And what they find that changes that clinician and that then changes the lives hopefully of many of their patients who would then have someone that's at least open-minded or has a a handy reference that they can turn to uh, if a question comes up about cannabis. So consider ordering a copy for your clinician, your doctor, your primary care, whoever it is, Uh, they're available in every major bookseller. I'm pretty sure Amazon's offering a real low price on it right now. If you don't like to support Amazon, there's um, bookshop.org, I think it is will support local booksellers. So thank you. Um, And then I see Alessandra is wondering how to get it in Brazil. Uh, probably the ebook is going to be the best way. Uh, we are working on translations, um, but none of them are out yet. And so, right now, it's either a hardcover or just the ebook. Thank you. I'm just uh, reading. So, no, the book does not come with the course, it's separate from the course. And um, I'm going to start jumping into the material here. While I do that, I don't watch the chat, but you can go ahead and put your messages in the chat and certainly communicate with each other or make comments and then if you have a question that you want to ask and it's a live question that you want to like a burning question related to the slides that i'm showing right now write that in the chat and simone can kind of interrupt me and say we've got a burning question for right now otherwise we'll save all the questions till afterwards okay let me get the slides up This is gonna be some good content tonight. Share screen. Okay, we are ready to go. Uh, you can see the slides and still here and see me, right? And they're advancing, thumbs up, perfect, okay. We have six studies tonight, but just five bullet points. So the first one, consensus recommendations for cannabis dosing in chronic pain. And I'll tell you all about that, I was a part of it. It's something that I mostly agree with, uh, but we'll get into the details. But the, these are recommendations for clinicians on how to treat cannabis, uh, how to treat patients with chronic pain using cannabis, give them a place to start if they don't know much about it. So we'll go through what that looks like and kind of talk about the strengths and the weaknesses of those recommendations. Uh, A study uh, in human patients with high-grade glioma, these are brain tumors, taking cannabis extracts, some some really interesting information there. And then two papers that came out uh, with real-world evidence on CBD use and its effectiveness in pain, anxiety, and depression. And, uh, you know, this is something that a lot of people are – these are three conditions that a lot of people are using CBD to treat – but there really hasn't been a lot of human evidence to support that, um, until you know we're just gathering some. So one is retrospective data, the other is survey data. So none of it's you know gold standard type stuff, but it is um, I think helpful. And then a preclinical study, a mouse study on CBD and ketamine. Ketamine, is something that I've been uh, very interested in and using a lot in the clinic, finding it very versatile. It's kind of like the cannabis of the pharmaceutical world for me. And so we'll see how these two worlds combine. And then at the end, this is a a study that I actually missed that came out last year, which is crazy because I'm so interested in um, uh, the acidic cannabinoids and also delivery via things like cannabis tea or in this case decoction. So this was a human study looking at the absorption and distribution of cannabinoids uh, via oil or decoction in humans. And so we'll look at that and some really interesting findings there. Okay, so jumping in. Consensus recommendations on dosing and administration of medical cannabis to treat chronic pain results of a modified Delphi process. What we say in the paper, and you, you can see I'm in there, Dustin Sulak on the bottom line there, lack of randomized controlled trial evidence combined with the practical reality that patients are receiving a pharmaceutically active drug creates an atypical clinical scenario that necessitates expert guidance, finds on how to and safely and perhaps effectively dose adequate. and administer medical cannabis. So basically, in the absence of gold standard randomized controlled trials, let's get a bunch of experts together, have them talk about how they practice and then see what we can, you know, uh, use from that conversation or that series of asking and answering questions as a group to inform the rest of the world. So these were 20 individuals with either extensive clinical experience or high academic interest in prescribing and managing patients on medical cannabis for the treatment of chronic pain. I felt very flattered. If you look at the list of countries here, you see United States is only on there once, and that was me. Um, this This study was funded by Spectrum Therapeutics, which is a part of Canopy Growth Corporation. Um, Mark Ware is a physician uh, who's been in cannabis for a long time and I respect greatly. He's published a lot. He invited everyone on the, this list. You know, He was part of what started, but I can um, very sincerely tell you that these recommendations in this paper and the whole process were not at all influenced by the funding. Uh, Spectrum Therapeutics just made it possible, but they, they really didn't have any input into what went in the paper, and I saw that firsthand. So, um, I'm just going to cover some of the main points here. Uh, we're not going to go through the process of how many times we asked and answered and refined questions. Let's just get to the meat of it. So, one one point that we all agreed on is that, and I think as I describe this, you'll see a little bit of uh, the Dustinisms coming through. It is important to note that every patient is different, and medical cannabis treatment, like most most other therapies, should be individualized to the patient. So and that shared treatment decision making with the patient is important. So this is starting off by saying this is not a cookie cutter approach. Everyone's one of the one of the strengths of cannabis is that it can be highly individualized based on the unique aspects of the patient and their situation and based on their personal preferences. And that's why shared decision making is important. So what I think when you just read the slide, you kind of nod, okay, fine. But to me, this is one of the most important. Um, statements from the paper is that this is a unique process. But then again, we don't want the clinician who's ready to kind of dabble in recommending cannabis to be scared away by this ultra complex individualized treatment kind of process. So we do need to make it a little more simple for them. And so uh, the next part is to establish treatment goals. Establishing treatment goals during the initial medical consultation may enhance patient outcomes and adherence to medical cannabis treatment. This was something that I was pretty strong about in those conversations. And so these are examples of patient treatment goals when using medical cannabis, improve quality of life, function, analgesic efficacy. So that's pain relief. Self-efficacy means how well a person's able to take care of themselves and have that can-do attitude about their illness and about their life. And this is, this is an area where I see cannabis can very powerfully make improvements sometimes, even if it doesn't change pain or doesn't change some of the symptoms. So, so often people feel like they've got their life back and they've got control in their life again. Improved sleep, mood, reduce anhedonia I think I was the one that proposed that one also because uh, so many patients with chronic pain are taking opioids and opioid um, misuse and um, opioid related problems are very intertwined with this condition anhedonia which is really the lack of the ability to experience pleasure or a diminished ability to experience pleasure. Uh, Reduce anxiety, address breakthrough symptoms, address episodic symptoms and exacerbations, improvement in disease-specific symptoms and symptom burden, spare opioids, reduce benzos, uh, reduce skeletal muscle relaxants, reduce hypnotic agents. So all this drug substitution stuff, which is really important, and mitigating the uh, side effects of opioids and withdrawing uh and opioid withdrawal symptoms so it's a long list but i think it's worth going through because these are all realistic you know these are all things that cannabis can do for someone that's suffering from chronic pain
2: recording in progress
1: we missed the beginning of the webinar oh well Um, maybe we'll redo it uh, for the the folks on the uh that catch it afterwards okay so um next is uh what we recommended And so we came up with three different protocols, the routine protocol, the conservative protocol and the rapid, more urgent protocol. So this is routine. Now, um, this is where I get a little uncomfortable because as many of you know, who are familiar with my work or are in the training program, you can see that this is different than what I tend to recommend for chronic pain. But uh, for um, the purpose of being conservative and helping people kind of feel safe about dabbling in this, here's where we start. CBD predominant is the starting type of medication and the starting dose is five milligrams twice daily. This is, you know, if you pick up the healer guide for CBD, that's also what I recommend, so it's not too crazy. But I think um, in a clinical scenario, if somebody came in to the office here Who's suffering from you know moderate to severe chronic pain? If they you know say well where do I start? I think I'm probably going to be wasting a lot of their time by just saying here just take this CBD product and start at five milligrams. You know I don't often see profound improvement on that dose, but got to start somewhere. The other thing to note is that um, the definition of CBD predominant can be up to a one to ten ratio. So this could be five milligrams of CBD and half a milligram of THC. If that were the case, that's actually not such a bad place to start, if it's got half a milligram of THC in there. Then you increase CBD, uh, CBD predominant. And why predominant instead of just dominant? I'm not sure. I think those words mean the same thing but we'll go with it Increase cbd predominant uh, by a total of 10 milligrams per day every two to three days so they can do five milligrams twice a day for a few days then 10 milligrams twice a day for a few days this is sounding pretty familiar for anyone that's seen uh for anyone that's seen this right uh, so this is kind of what i recommend for people that don't have a clinician guiding them and so you know again this is a clinician that doesn't have a lot of experience so it's a fine place to start When to add THC? If a patient is not reaching treatment goals when CBD predominant dose is 40 milligrams per day or more, then you could start THC at two and a half milligrams per day and then increase it by two and a half every two to seven days until the goals are met or until they reach up to a maximum of 40 per day. And I think that's a pretty good cutoff uh, because a lot of patients will start building tolerance if they go much further than that dose but not everyone. Some people, oops, some people do really well with a higher dose. Um, And then down here real small, you might not be able to read it. It says refer for expert consultation if considering greater than 40 milligrams per day of THC. And this is an open access paper. So you can just search uh, consensus, cannabis, chronic pain, Delphi or whatever, and you'll be able to find it. So not not bad, really. I mean, off, off the cuff, it seems a little conservative, but, but pretty good for the purpose. Here's the rapid protocol for patients requiring urgent management of severe pain, palliation and for those with significant prior use of cannabis. So either we don't waste their time because they've already tried cannabis or we don't want waste their time because they're not gonna come back because these initial doses just aren't gonna do enough and we gotta get them some relief faster. So in this case, we're not gonna start with CBD dominant, we're gonna start with a balanced ratio. So kind of a one to one-ish type of ratio. And then the starting dose would be two and a half to five milligrams of each cannabinoid once or twice per day. So on this one, I would you know tend to lean more towards the two and a half. Uh, unless they're cannabis uh, experienced, then we can go with a higher dose of the THC. And then you increase by two and a half to five milligrams every two to three days of each cannabinoid, once or twice daily, until you meet the goals or the goals that we set, remember all those goals we talked about in on, on previous slide, and then the maximum dose of 40 milligrams per day, you would wanna refer for expert consultation. And then finally, the conservative protocol for patients who may be more sensitive to drug effects or um, for clinically frail patients, those with complex comorbidities, polypharmacy and or mental health disorders. And so this is a lot like the standard protocol. You can see we start with CBD predominant. We um, start with five milligrams once or twice daily. We go up uh, by five to ten milligrams every two to three days, so very similar. But in this case, we don't add THC until, um, the, if they're not reaching treatment goals by 40 milligrams per day, and we start the THC much lower. Instead of two and a half, we start at one milligram per day, and then just increase by one milligram every seven days until we reach 40. So that's, you know, a year. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's uh, two thirds of a year right there. Um, so a little slow, but I think you get the point, and I think any clinician that's new to cannabis that gets this document. I do think it would be very helpful for them and give them uh, some confidence in trying this out. There was also a section on breakthrough pain uh, in which we uh, recommended inhaled cannabis due to the more rapid onset of action and limited duration of action. Dried flower vaporization is the preferred mode of administration as opposed to smoking or vaporizing extracts. And uh, I think a lot of you that are familiar with my work know that that's what I recommend for inhalation in most cases also. And then what to inhale, either THC CBD balanced formula or THC predominant product. Because if what we're really working for is breakthrough pain or what what isn't covered in the slide, I think we mentioned it in the paper, is relief of opioid cravings or opioid withdrawal. Uh, sometimes the in, inhalation is just far superior to uh, taking it by mouth, it's just so rapid onset. And then the last slide I've got on this paper is when to follow up. So uh, when you're initiating uh, treatment, follow up every two to four weeks. I usually lean more towards four to six, but I think I'm giving people a very detailed plans. And again, this is for people, clinicians that are new to cannabis and need kind of that extra little bit of um, you know, advice and then and, and just feeling secure. And then when the patient is stabilized on cannabis, the recommended follow up would be every three months but check your uh, local jurisdiction for rules about that and then discontinue cannabis if there are moderate or severe adverse effects or if you get to the maximum agreed upon dose and there's no benefit or if there's any misuse or diversion. So I think all pretty solid. Now, even though I'm not watching the chat, I did see that Pam had her hand raised and it's probably something about this. So Simone, if you could unmute Pam, I'd love to uh, check in with her uh, response to this.
0: Just
2: lost, Pam.
3: Oh, I'm sorry I had a question, but I can't ask it right now. I'll try it later. Thank you.
1: Okay, you got it, Pam. Thank you. Okay, so there's that. There's that one. A good document to have, you know, you can, um, I guess you could print this open source uh, or, you know, open access document and give it to your doctor also instead of buying my book but my book will go way beyond this so don't do that um but but it's nice it's out there it's free you can direct anyone to it who's interested in cannabis for chronic pain there was an editorial also published uh from donald abrams and um he was matthew hill was the co-author that was basically saying you know these consensus recommendations don't replace clinical data, you know, clinical trial data, and they absolutely don't. But that was the whole purpose of this paper is to fill that void uh, until we have clinical trial data. And what we didn't really emphasize in either this paper or the um, editorial was that um, the standard method of clinical trials don't work very well in cannabis based medicine world, because the products have so much variability. The patients have so much variability. Um, You know, there are ways to do clinical trials that are considered a pragmatic intervention design, where it's not that everyone in the treatment group gets the same treatment, but everyone in the treatment group may go through the same methodology. And this might be an example of a methodology that they could use. I, I think that makes a lot more sense. So we're still emphasizing that individualized treatment and shared decision making aspect of medical cannabis which i think is so important all right let's move on here we have a phase two randomized clinical trial assessing the tolerability of two different ratios of medicinal cannabis in patients with high grade glioma this was a single center phase two double blind randomized controlled trial that looked at these two different ratios of cannabis oil in patients with recurrent or inoperable high-grade gliomas. So these are typically, um, uh, you know, terminal diagnosis brain cancers. And this was uh, funded by Fit Bioseuticals out of Sydney, Australia. Trial took place over 12 weeks and included 64 patients that received either one cannabis treatment or another cannabis treatment. Uh, trial but it was not the same control. But then those 64 patients were compared to outcomes of 61 historically matched cases Patients with the same demographic and the same basic cancer diagnoses and the same kind of level of pathology. Similar, I shouldn't say same, but very similar. Uh, um, Uh, matching in the controls to the active patients. And the outcomes that they were looking for were side effects of the treatment, quality of life, and then also the results of the MRI, what's going on with their tumors. Uh, Blood cannabinoid metabolites and endocannabinoid level analysis is forthcoming. So I'm really looking forward to that. Another paper uh, that this group will hopefully eventually publish uh, showing what was going on with their endocannabinoid system and, and phytocannabinoids in their blood during this treatment. So these were the two interventions. Uh, One was a one-to-one ratio cannabis oil. As you can see here, not very potent, less than 10 milligrams per milliliter total at approximately one-to-one. The other was a four-to-one ratio oil that this time was almost 20 milligrams uh, potency total, but uh, was much stronger on the THC side than the CBD side. I'm really not sure why they picked these two, but fine. Uh, There was no information about whether they included any CBDA or THCA or terpenes or anything like that. This was administered once a day at night, starting at 0.2 milliliters and increasing that same amount every two days after a call with the nurse. So um, 0.2 milliliters of this 10 milligram per milliliter uh, formula you know, we're talking about like 0.2 milligrams-ish of cannabis as the starting dose. So very low starting dose, not what you would think about someone with a deadly cancer, what we would typically be doing, Um, but uh, that's all right. We still learned a lot from this. So here are the results, the average dose and the adverse effects. We're gonna start there. So the average dose of the one-to-one ratio after they titrated was uh, 10 and 10 basically. Again, this is just right before bed. So this this makes a lot more sense than 0.2 and 0.2, right? Yeah. So 10 and 10, uh, probably uh, helped. they probably felt it. And then interestingly, I'm not sure what this is about, but the average dose in this four to one group was 27 milligrams and 6.8. Maybe they titrated so slowly that by the time they got up to 27, they didn't really notice it. But this is a much higher dose than uh, I would expect using kind of a titrate until you feel side effect type of methodology. What were the side effects? Dry mouth, tiredness at night, dizziness mainly at night, and drowsiness. So there were very few next day side effects, even though I'm sure some of the people that were taking 27 milligrams did. If I took 27 tonight, I would definitely have some next day side effects if if I slept at all. Um, At week week eight, four participants reported mild hallucinations, some paranoia or euphoria at night, and they decreased the dose and that went away. The other thing I want to point out is that this is average. So it means some people were using more than 27. Uh, And then the total side effects identified decreased during the trial from 57% people having any side effect to 41% having any side effect at week 12. So people were able to adjust their dose and reduce the side effects to some extent. Here are some of the outcomes in the cannabis group entirely. So this includes the four to one and the one to one versus the non-cannabis group. And I think this is important. So reduction in tumor size. Over the course of these 12 weeks, 11% of the cannabis users had a reduction in their tumor size versus zero in the non-cannabis users. Stable disease, 34% in the cannabis group, 45 in the retrospective group. Progressive disease, 27.5% in the cannabis group and 53% in the retrospective group. So look at how this 45 and 53 kind of shifted over to the left in the cannabis group. We actually saw um, fewer with progressive and more with reduction. So was there something going on there that um, even this kind of very modest dose of cannabis was doing in conjunction with whatever treatments they were doing? Of course, this wasn't just cannabis. This was cannabis adding on to whatever their oncologist wanted to do. It's not a huge group. We're just talking about 60 or so patients in each group. But it looks like this is a, an anti-cancer signal here, right? This This whole shift here seems like wow maybe this treatment actually impacted their outcomes and then this is really obvious dexamethasone is a steroid it's administered often as a treatment for uh, the side effects of the chemotherapy and it's an anti-inflammatory and you can see that there was a much lower rate of dexamethasone requirement in the cannabis users versus the non-users so uh, potentially these modest doses of cannabis were having a protective effect and or anti-inflammatory effect. And then I wanted to show you the comparison between the one-to-one and the four-to-one group, which was really not significant. Um, uh, so uh, did, we can skip the did not complete, uh, meaning did not complete the MRIs, but you can see here that uh, the dark is the one-to-one and the light is the four-to-one and there was no real difference between complete response meaning their their tumors went away entirely uh partial reduction in tumors stable disease mild enhancement progressive disease and even aggressively progressive disease so it didn't seem like the difference between one-to-one and four-to-one really impacted the the cancer-related outcomes or at least not the mri uh, outcomes And then there were some differences though, between one to one and four to one. So the physical and functional domains of their quality of life questionnaires were statistically significant in favor of the one-to-one ratio. And so people were having greater improvements or less deterioration in function and um, physical physical domain of quality of life with the one-to-one. Sleep improved in both groups An improvement in physical well-being was statistically significant for all patients. So even if they had progressive disease, it seemed like, you know, this is the common thing with cannabis, right? You like even if their symptoms don't improve, they're going to tell you that their feeling of well-being or quality of life often improves. um, That kind of restored self uh, message. So this is one of the first studies to evaluate the safety and tolerability of medical cannabis in a patient group. With blood-brain barrier disruption, impaired brain function, and numerous medications, including chemotherapy, steroids, and anti-epileptic drugs. A single nightly dose of the THC containing cannabis was well tolerated in patients in both groups with high-grade gliomas and significantly improved sleep, functional well-being, and contentment with quality of life in a sample of patients compared to their baseline. So over 12 weeks. In a patient population that you got to remember aggressive brain cancer over the course of 12 weeks, you tend not to see them uh, re- reporting that their quality of life and their well-being improved, right? Uh, the, this was almost everyone in the group had some improvement or at least a stable level. And then from this trial, one-to-one ratio has been identified as the preferred combination, um, the moving, uh, little typo there, moving forward to further trials. So they're going to hopefully do more work along these lines. So that's pretty exciting. You know, we had a little bit of evidence from a Sativex trial that still hasn't been published, but the abstract has been out. Again, looking at a one-to-one add-on for people with glioma undergoing conventional, well, I think that one was undergoing a temozolomide specifically, which is a a chemotherapy drug for brain cancer. And um, the abstract that, that was let out, but didn't make it to a journal yet, Uh, also demonstrated the same thing that was about 60 milligrams total per day was what those patients were getting and it seemed like it was really extending their uh, length of survival and their quality of life so what can i say before i move on uh, and and this is all covered in my curriculum but very often people with cancer tell someone with cannabis uh, knowledge or uh, access that i have cancer and that person says okay we need to get thousands of milligrams into you right away and um you know sometimes that works and sometimes it just makes them have an awful experience and never even want to think or say the word cannabis again and i think what this study is showing is that a moderate dose of cannabis like what i suggest as a first line approach in my training program and in my book Um, this moderate level can make a big difference in people that are facing a terminal diagnosis. And it might even not just be a quality of life difference. It might uh, help some of them fight their cancer. Okay. Well, what happened? I went down. Okay, here we go. Next one. These are two CBD studies. So remember, I started this webinar saying there's like very little evidence that CBD is helpful treatment for pain. And And it's true. Like there have not been a lot of studies that have shown that CBD helps patients with pain. We covered a couple of them just in the last few months in these webinars, or at least the last six months in these webinars. So they're starting to emerge, but the big criticism is everyone's using CBD for pain and CBD has never been shown to help with pain. And uh, THC is the one that's been shown to help with pain. So what's going on here? That was basically what Don Abrams said in the editorial uh, related to that consensus statement. and so here we have some data. So, this was a survey administered by uh, some friends at, in Southern California at UCSD. Uh, 253 participants recruited from seven pain clinics administered a survey. That's it. And then we're going to go straight to the responses. So, they were asked, Have you tried a CBD product? And 152 said yes. So, then among them, uh, do you believe the CBD product has helped your condition? And very interestingly, 39% said it helped it a lot and almost 20% said that it helped it completely. So we've already got a 60% subjective response rate for a lot or completely. And then another 30% said it helped it a little bit. So people that hadn't necessarily been recommended to take CBD, you know, what we're looking at here is less than 10% found it unhelpful. This is surprising to me and, and encouraging. It's exciting, really, that there's such a high perception of it helping in this patient population. And then uh, if CBD helped your condition, what type of condition did it help? And you can see it's spread out over back pain, nerve pain, limb pain, nerve pain, uh, you know, neck pain it was, and fibromyalgia, migraines, and, and everything else. So it's it's not like CBD is helping with just one specific type of pain. It seems like it's helping across the board. What type of products have you tried? Uh, mostly edibles and oral tinctures. Some people did capsules, but the whole variety, spray, cream, ointment, inhale or smoke. So lots and lots of overlap there. So all, all across the board. Did, did any of the CBD products you used contain THC, the chemical that gets you high? Yes, 56%, no, 33%, I don't know, and declined to answer. And then um, the authors of this article went back and talked about this question not being a really well-worded question, right? Um, because now are we including people that are taking, say, like a one-to-one CBD to THC that they got from the dispensary? Or is this a, just a hemp product that has up to 0.3% THC? Or what? what is this? So a lot of ambiguity there. But I think the rest of the results are still somewhat relevant uh, I, these next two are important. Please choose the answer the best applies. I was able to reduce the amount of pain medication I take by using CBD products. And here you see 67, almost 68% are saying that CBD helped them reduce their pain medications. That's, that's a lot, that's interesting, oops. And then the last one, the kicker is, um, were you able to reduce opioids using CBD? And here we have uh, over 50% saying that they agree or strongly agree to CBD helping with opioid reduction. There was no difference between the groups of, those who answered yes or no to, does your CBD product contain THC? No difference in that in terms of the answer to this question or the previous one about reducing pain medications. That's surprising to me, but again, this is just survey data. I would expect CBD products that have a little bit of THC in there to be much better at helping patients reduce their pain medications and their opioids, but I'm open to surprises. And then, um, interestingly, 36.5% of the respondents did not know or think that there was a difference between medical marijuana and CBD. And so, again, um, you know, these authors really can't say for certain what types of products were consumed, and there was no data on dosage. So, this is a bird's eye view, and I I think that's useful. And then, um, There was a high variability of familiarity with CBD content in their products. So like no one really knew how strong their products were or what they were taking and how much they were taking. The combination, this is a quote from the author's combination of variable familiarity and CBD concentration in available products puts patients in a difficult position when they are in search for a standardized CBD product to try as a therapeutic option. And I think this is a problem so many of us have been dealing with for so long and why it's nice to have, uh, not just, I I don't want to pretend that Healer is the only standardized product out there, but it is nice to have something that's standardized and consistent and reproducible and comes with some instructions on how to use it. uh, Something that you don't need to bust out a calculator to figure out how much you're getting in each dose. Uh, These are uh, useful for patients. The known benefit of THC for pain raises the question of whether the small THC component in some products was responsible for perceived analgesic effects and reduction of pain medications in our cohort. And I think that's uh, a useful statement from the authors. I'm just going to plug in here. Okay. Uh, now, here's another one that um, is similar, but this is not a survey, this is retrospective chart data. From 279 participants uh, who were treated at a medical cannabis clinic in Quebec, Canada, or a network of clinics, mostly women in their 60s with chronic pain, but some variability there. And uh, these in the electronic health record, they collected data on pain, anxiety, depression, and well-being at baseline three months and six months. So a little more objective than just uh, that survey. And so uh, here's what they were taking uh, CBD rich products at baseline, 279 people. And so you can see the oil in the products, uh, the oil products had a range of 0.1 to 2 milligrams per milliliter of THC and a range of 2 to 52 milligrams per milliliter of CBD. So huge range there from super weak products to uh, fairly potent products. The dried flour, Uh, was CBD dominant. Average daily dosing of CBD was only 11.47, but a big standard deviation there. And the maximum daily dose, the max somebody got up to was 156 milligrams of CBD per day and a maximum of six milligrams of THC per day. So this really is a CBD dominant group. And then there were some other patients, 104, that used a balanced product, that had, you know, kind of the one-to-one-ish ratio. And you can see that their average daily dose was closer to 20 to 25 of THC and CBD. And then finally, there were 12 patients that took a THC-rich product and um, their average daily dose of THC was 54 milligrams and only 10 of CBD. But for the rest of this, we're gonna focus on the CBD-rich group, which is what the paper focused on. And so, Baseline's in blue, follow-up is in turquoise, and uh, that's uh, the first follow-up at three months, and the second follow-up at six months in orange. And this is not an impressive chart. You can see that uh, the pain levels dipped at first, but then went back up. They dipped at first for depression, went back up, dipped and stayed down for anxiety, and kind of the same thing for well being. But we've seen a lot of other charts like this from observational studies of using cannabis to treat pain. And they usually look a little more impressive than this bar graph here. And so again, you know, maybe we're not seeing the profound effects we expect to see with medical cannabis when we focus on just the CBD rich group. Oops. Um, interestingly, there was a big difference in the response rate between those with mild symptoms and those with moderate to severe symptoms. And so you've, if you look at, if you split them up into moderate to severe, You see a more impressive decrease in the pain levels in the moderate to severe group, and actually an increase in pain levels in those that had mild symptoms. It's a a very small increase, but it's a curious one. Anxiety went down more, and I do believe, from my experience, that CBD predominant treatment is probably more powerful in addressing anxiety than it is in addressing pain. And so this makes sense to me. And but again, what I don't understand is why the those with the mild anxiety symptoms. Had this increase in anxiety over the 12 months? Maybe it was what's going on in Canada. Probably, um, you know, there's just been so many other factors and uh, social social circumstances that are making people more anxious, more pain, or whatever. Uh, depression here again better in those with worse symptoms at baseline, and well-being improved more in those with worse symptoms at baseline. This this well-being score gets better as it goes down. So. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what to make of this, but what they found was that the addition of THC to CBD at the first follow-up did not produce any effect on the scores at the second follow-up. So I know I was really surprised and, I, and I, we can go back and look at what that looked like. So at the first follow-up, some people kind of went into this group here where they were taking a pretty decent amount of THC and CBD, I'm super surprised that that didn't catapult them into a new level of symptom control when they added that, when the 104 people added that, but this is data and I respect it. The, the, you know These clinicians collected this data and for some reason it didn't work the way I would have expected it to. And the conclusion is that CBD rich treatments have a beneficial impact on patients with self-reported moderate or severe symptoms of pain, anxiety or depression. And overall well-being, but not in patients with mild symptoms. I would have totally, I would have guessed it would have been the opposite, that CBD would have been something that people with mild symptoms feel like, oh, that's nice. That helps me feel less anxious and it helps the pain a little bit and I'm not taking as many of my non-steroidal drugs. But those with severe pain, I would assume, based on my 12 years of experience here, that they would have needed something with more THC in it. And if we started them on CBD and added THC, we wouldn't have seen—you know—we would have seen an improvement, which did not show up here. So, um, you know, when I when I read a study with objective data that is really uh, contrary to my clinical experience, I. Uh, you know, it might make some of us a little uncomfortable, but I think this is really important because we all have blind spots and maybe some of my assumptions were not correct. And I should be thinking more about moderate to severe pain patients, starting off with a CBD dominant treatment, like we recommended in those consensus recommendations that we started with today. So maybe I should follow our own advice. We'll see. Okay. Here is another study that's only slightly off topic, and this involves ketamine. So I just want to give a little background information about ketamine. Oh, well, I guess that's what we do in the slide, and then I'll I'll chat a little bit more about it. Although it's useful as a rapid-acting antidepressant drug, ketamine is known to induce psychotomimetic effects, which may interfere with its therapeutic use. What psychotomimetic means is mimicking psychosis. So it can make people kind of go crazy temporarily, not permanently. CBD has shown promising antidepressant effects without inducing hyperlocomotion. So what this means is that some antidepressant drugs, when you put them in the mouse model, um, the, the depression model improves, their scores improve, but they're running around and running around. So it's got this kind of stimulant effect, which ketamine has. CBD can prevent the psychotomimetic effects of other drugs, such as THC and amphetamine, in both humans and animals. And so these authors were wondering well, what happens if we put together CBD and THC? Do we get um, all the benefits without the, the potential side effects based on this mouse model? So before I go into this study, I just want to pause for a second and tell a little bit about ketamine and my experience with it. I had a mentor um, that had been encouraging me to start using ketamine with my patients for a few years before I finally started doing so. And that was three or four years ago. I had been reading about the impressive antidepressant effects of ketamine. I had seen a couple of my very severe chronic pain patients go down to a a clinic in New Hampshire, receive high dose ketamine infusions uh, for complex regional pain syndrome and come back much better. So I was very interested in it. And, um, thinking about implementing it in my practice, but it wasn't until someone, uh, th- and I'll, I'll name this someone, Rabbi Nathan Siegel, who is uh, deceased now, but he was a great mentor and friend of mine, and also, I think, heavily influenced my um, kind of low-dose cannabis approach in in the early days. In my 20s, I, I saw him use a pipe that had like a little bowl on it that was probably about the you know size of a a grain of rice <laughs> that you could put in there. And that's that's how much he smoked. It was beautiful. And and you know, kind of showed me how you can use kind of spiritual practices to potentiate the benefits of cannabis. But anyways, he encouraged me to start using kind of ketamine in the same way, this low dose approach that can be absorbed through the oral mucosa. And so I started just treating my most severe um, suicidal patients that hadn't responded fully or at all to cannabis with this low dose of ketamine and just like in the few uh small randomized controlled trials that had been out there there was about a 70% response rate and it was a profound response rate where people were coming back saying i've thought about killing myself every day for the last 20 years and I haven't thought about it once since I had that first dose academy. I mean stories like that that are and this is a very low safe dose that can be administered as an outpatient we're not talking about IV we're not talking about the high dose nasal spray that has since been approved by the FDA uh, for treatment refractory depression and The real interesting thing about ketamine is that it's not a drug effect. Like most antidepressants, you take the antidepressant every day and you get, you know, if you get any benefit, which, uh, you know, I think the um, uh, most of the antidepressants on the market uh, don't do much better than placebo in clinical trials. Some of them do a little bit better. And I, I, I do know that there are some patients that do really well with these drugs, but they do leave a lot to be desired. Ketamine, on the other hand, you take the ketamine it creates about an hour or so of a mild psychoactive effect. That psychoactive effect wears off as the drug wears off sometime in the next 24 hours could be right away, could be not till the next day. And it's most commonly the next day, there's this lift of mood, this relief of anxiety, often a relief of pain. It's uh, it's this incredible like reset button that seems to have been hit. And then people feel better afterwards. Globally, it's a global better feeling. Um, and then that can last for anywhere from one to seven days after a single dose. So the ketamine isn't something that people take every day. They it's, it's very analogous to microdosing mushrooms or microdosing LSD. And it is a psychedelic like substance, like, like both of those. And so you take this little dose, you don't go into the full psychotomimetic effect, just get a little dreamy, a little relaxed, have a little conversation with oneself, uh, feel, uh, you know, disengaged, I think is the best way to describe it, disengage from those patterns of thought and those patterns of behavior. And then when you re-engage, there's an opportunity for a repatterning, for a change in those, um, you know, maybe uh, outdated patterns that need to be updated. So I've seen great things with ketamine. Now I'm uh, probably following about 200 patients that are on it, I've been super impressed. Besides this low oral dose, I've seen it work incredibly well as a topical for pain. It um, it works very well as a high dose intramuscular injection for more of a psychedelic type, uh, like a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy psychedelic type treatment. Uh, very powerful, very versatile. That's why I say it's kind of like the cannabis of the pharmacy world. I had never imagined that I would be so interested in a synthetic drug with my background in lifestyle medicine and plant medicine. um, But this drug has really gotten my attention and I think it's a potent solution for a lot of people right now. The other thing is that the safety parameters are well known and it's extraordinarily inexpensive. So really good option for a lot of people. So anyways, let's let's get back to the study here. So uh, another little bit of background, there was a study in 2011 in which healthy subjects were administered ketamine at, um, I'd call that a moderate dose. It was IV, but this isn't like a super high IV dose, uh, preceded by either CBD 600 milligrams or placebo. And what they found was that CBD enhanced some of the effects of ketamine and diminished others. So it it augmented the activating effects. So like people actually did become a little more like active, talkative, hyper, you know, um, but it, it reduced the ketamine induced depersonalization. So where people don't feel like they're themselves anymore, it seemed to mitigate that to some extent. And that is really the only data that I could find in, uh, in the human realm of combining cannabis and ketamine. But this study caught my attention because so many of my patients have come back and said, the ketamine's amazing. It's even better when I do a little THC beforehand. And, um, and and I think there's really something to that. So this didn't explore that, but it at least explored CBD. And so what was done in this study is that S-ketamine, which is just one of the two versions of this molecule, this is the one that causes, is actually has stronger psychotomimetic effects. So this is the half of ketamine that's more psychoactive and more likely to cause adverse effects. At a, a variety of doses, and then they gave CBD at a variety of doses, either alone or in combination to these mice. And they assessed the antidepressant effects in a model called forced swimming test, which is a very common depression model in mice. And then they evaluated the psychostimulant effect in the open field test. They also tested a AMPA receptor antagonist. So this is a glutamate receptor. It's not the N. Uh, MDM- uh, N- NDNA receptor, what am I, I'm saying that wrong, but we get it right. There, it's not the typical glutamate receptor that we associate with ketamine. Um, but it is, it turns out an important part in, uh, how these drugs, both CBD and ketamine are exerting their antidepressant effect. And so these researchers just wanted to see if we block this AMPA receptor, do the antidepressant effects still occur? And so the result was that CBD induced significant dose-dependent antidepressant effects without causing hyperlocomotion. This was not a big surprise. You can give rodents CBD and relieve their depression when you force them to swim. S- ketamine produced an antidepressant effect associated with hyperlocomotion in the higher dose. So ketamine did relieve their depression, but it also made them run around like crazy. Um, pre-treatment with CBD attenuated the ketamine-induced hyperlocomotion, but preserved its antidepressant effect. So in this study, you know, which is just one model, it looks like CBD was able to do what the researchers hoped it would do, make the antidepressant effects of ketamine, uh, uh, maintain those effects while reducing side effects. The AMPA antagonist inhibited both the antidepressant effect of ketamine and CBD, suggesting a similar mechanism of action With CBD, it's not likely a direct effect on AMPA. It's mostly a serotonin effect that that can then influence AMPA. Pre-administration of CBD did not interfere with the antidepressant-like effect of ketamine, so it didn't block the antidepressant effect, but it did not add to it either. So co-administering them both produced similar antidepressant effects to administering one or the other. There didn't seem to be an additive or synergistic effect, but... um, they didn't test a wide variety of doses in this uh, protocol called isobologram, which would r- have really elucidated that. So this study wasn't really designed to see is there a synergistic or an additive effect, um, but there w- it, it didn't look like there was one based on this study. Uh, and we'll go down. Our findings suggest that CBD and ketamine's combined administration can be a promising therapeutic strategy for achieving an appropriate antidepressant effect without unwanted side effects. But I will tell you that using ketamine in low doses, we can achieve antidepressant effects without side effects. Uh, it, It can be a very powerful treatment when you get the dose right and very easy to do with the help of a good compounding pharmacist. Okay, we're getting to the end here. I know it's been a lot of science in almost an hour. Okay, before this last one, everybody stand up or shake it out. Take a little break, take a drink of water. We're doing shaking the tree. Does anyone still watch those um, healer videos where it's me doing some exercises? If you don't check it out, it's on the the healer section of uh, I mean, the the wellness section of healer.com. You got some nice exercises there. Awesome, i am seeing everybody moving. That's great. And I see a a raised hand from Carlos Gonzalez. We could break it up a little bit and uh, see what Carlos has to say before uh, we get into this next study. I think you're still muted, uh, but we'll be there. Great, no, I hear you. Hi, Carlos. Oh, Oh, you asked me, so now I gotta like answer in this way. I am. I'm doing the inner inventory. I'm like a a seven, an eight, and a nine on breath, body, and mood. And so, if so, the inner inventory is something that I talk about and teach patients to kind of check in with themselves to see how they're responding to cannabis. So, besides seven, eight, and nine, I'm great. I'm so thankful to be here. What's uh? How are you? And and what? What's your question or comment yeah um you know want to thank you uh for everything you do with healer and spreading all your
4: knowledge so first of all i just want to thank you for that and then just a recommendation in regards to ketamine because i listened to a great conversation and started down a book to kind of help me and i think it'd it'd be great to put him in your network and maybe even a conversation with him is um michael poland who has done extensive research in regards to ketamine how it works and I, I, you know, and I love the tie into CBD and the and the effects of it. So I just wanted to put that out there because it was right on the topic of it and someone that I've listened to and speaking about it, who has done extensive research on ketamine to help with, you know, depression and everything and has written uh,
1: several books about it. Was that Ah, and OK, great. Yeah, I read Michael Pollan's um, kind of a couple of years ago. It was how to change your mind, which is a great book that I would recommend for most people where he does a survey of some psychedelic drugs and kind of his own experience with it. He came to it very skeptically and kind of not wanting uh, this experiential aspect of it, but more just to report about it. But then in, in doing the research, he ended up taking these psychedelics and having these profound experiences and really changing his life. And so perhaps since then, he's delved into ketamine because I don't remember ketamine in that book, but thank you for the suggestion. Yeah, absolutely. He's a great absolutely. author. Yes, a great indeed. Author. All right. Let's jump into this next one. This is uh, October 2020. I can't believe this one snuck by me. Cannabis decoction and oil infusion administered to 14 healthy subjects, 12 males and two females, all cannabis users, but no cannabis use in the week prior. Decoction is a boil. It's kind of like tea, but you boil it. You don't just steep it. And usually, uh, technically, it would be uh, boiled in a cover with a cover on top. Okay. So how did they make it? The decoction, they took half a gram of cannabis flour, put it in half a liter of water, boiled it for 15 minutes, and then drank one-fifth of what they made. The oil was prepared in what's called, uh, this is European, it's called a galenical preparation. Uh, It's supposed to be a standardized process where they'll take a half gram of the flowering tops, put it in five milliliters of oil. That's a teaspoon of oil. So half a gram and a teaspoon of oil, not much, and then put that in a water bath for 120 minutes so it's not going above the boiling temperature of water and then taking that and administering 15 drops or a little less than half a milliliter. So interesting place to start. Let's look at what they found in, in these preparations. Um, and, and so this, this it was the same flower as the starting material, just a different method of preparing. And I tried and tried to figure it out, but it was not in the paper. Where this plus or minus? Where does this deviation come from? Is it because each patient was preparing their own, or because they made a handful of different preparations, or was this just the uncertainty from the uh, analytic equipment that they were using to detect these levels? And I could not figure that out. But anyways, here we go. Uh, the the decoction had a very low level of THC in it. So again, this is 100 milliliters. It had 0.3 milligrams of THC, up to 0.42 milligrams of THC. So um, less than half a milligram. It had uh, about one to one and a half milligrams of THCA, just a tiny bit of CBD, and a moderate amount of CBDA, 4.4 milligrams. So this was kind of a one-to-one-ish flower um, and what you can see, they didn't, they didn't tell exactly what was in the flower, but it looks like a one-to-one-ish flower, a type 2 flower. The oil had one milligram of THC, 1.4 of THCA, 0. 0.9 of CBD, and 2.8 of CBDA. Decarboxylation of THCA and CBD was not apparent in either preparation, so the, the proportion of decarboxylated was similar to what was found in the flower. But the compounds extraction was higher in oil than water, but not complete and homogeneous for different substances. So even though oil ended up with a higher uh, I was gonna say it looks like it's lower. We we've got five, seven. I don't know. This this was a statement from the authors, but I'm not sure how they actually explained that the extraction was higher in oil because it was the same starting material, and it looks like the total milligrams is actually higher in decoction. So I'm not sure about that statement. I didn't notice that when I was preparing the slide. But let's look at um, let's let's look at what happens. So we're going to start by comparing decoction and oil consumed again by 14 humans. We're going to focus on just a few things here: Cmax is the maximum blood concentration of these compounds. And -hmm. so we're gonna start by looking at decoction. You can see that there there was a 0.4 nanograms per milliliter. This is a very low blood level of THC. And there was a very low level of THC in the decoction itself. The area under the curve was 2.6. And the half-life, which is a measure of how fast it's eliminated was 5.6. Now let's compare this with the cannabis oil. They reached the same level of blood. C-max, again, is the maximum concentration. So even though the oil had over three times as much THC in it, the maximum peak concentration in the blood was the same. But this is where it gets, um, you know, interesting. The oil had three times as much THC in it, Area under the curve means the total amount that was absorbed over the course of 24 hours, which is a calculation. But you can see here there was a little bit more total absorbed in the oil, but certainly not three times as much. And so what it looks like is that the THC is getting absorbed better, that there's higher bioavailability in the the decoction, even though there was more of it present in the oil. And then you can see that the half-life is much shorter in the decoction, which means the THC left the body much faster. Something really different is going on here about absorbing THC via a water-based delivery method or an oil-based delivery method. That's the point here, is that it seems to be getting into the body better, more bioavailability and leaving the body faster when it's consumed as a decoction. And this probably also applies to tea there was not a there, there was no like um, creamer or lipid milk anything added to this tea it was just water so let's look at now the, the this is 11 hydroxy thc which is the active metabolite of thc so the body gets thc it turns it into 11 hydroxy that has similar effects to thc also therapeutic and then the body turns it into carboxy thc and gets it out via urine and other ways. So what I found interesting here is that the cannabis oil decoction, uh, I mean, the cannabis decoction versus the oil, um, again, we see that the oil had a slightly higher level of 11-hydroxy as the max, but not three times. And then the area under the curve, the total 11-hydroxy THC was very comparable, slightly higher in the oil, but far from threefold higher. So again, this is showing somehow that this when thc is absorbed through the decoction it seems to be having a stronger effect in the body no difference in the half life and so that's a metab- active metabolite of thc let's look at thca again just to compare these two preparations decoction and oil had very similar amounts of thca in them and we can see that they ended up having a very similar cmax of thca and a very similar area under the curve of thca so there wasn't much of a difference in the absorption of THCA depending on whether it was in water or in oil. Interesting. Not, not exactly what I would have predicted because THCA is much more soluble in uh, water, um, but, but we're looking at the total amount. Now moving on to CBD. So we can, this, this changed up here for this slide. And so we see that uh, very similar amounts of CBD in both preparations but we can see here that in the decoction, we reached a much higher peak. So maybe it was getting absorbed faster than in the oil. But we can see here the area under the curve about five times as much got absorbed. So CBD seems to get absorbed really well from a water-based delivery method, better than an oil-based delivery method. Take, take note. Healer. Yeah, we're we're thinking about this. But of of course, I've been recommending cannabis tea to people for a while, mostly because I wanted to emphasize the THCA and the CBDA. But now I'm recognizing that cannabis tea, even though it doesn't contain a lot of CBD and THC in it, because they're just not that soluble in water, whatever it does contain seems to get into the body really well based on this study. And then finally, if we look at CBDA again, the the decoction had about double the amount of CBDA in it. Um, The peak level was about threefold what it was in the oil area under the curve also threefold and um, the half-life much shorter. So here again, we see CBDA uh, getting absorbed better in the decoction, but leaving the body faster. And this is also something that I've noticed with the acidic cannabinoids in general, but also with cannabis tea is that some people need it more where they might be able to do an oil twice a day. They might need tea more than twice a day, three or four times a day. Really interesting. And I, I never recommend decoction. I would love to, hopefully sometime we'll do a little test to see how steeping it compares to boiling it for 15 minutes. But I mean, if somebody's going to be drinking something, you know, two to four times daily, it seems like a lot to ask to boil for 15 minutes then let it cool down and drink it much easier just to pop a little nug in your coffee or in your tea and forget about it. So what were the findings? Just to summarize what we just talked about, both formulations induced mild changes in blood. Oh, oh, sorry. They, they measured all sorts of physiological things too. So both formulations induced mild changes in blood pressure and heart rate, drowsiness and hunger, Very interestingly, the decoction produced more pronounced reduction in diastolic blood pressure than the oil. So it was more of a blood pressure effect from decoction, maybe because of the rapid absorption of THC. That's at least my prediction for the reason for that. Decoction induced greater feeling of hunger and drowsiness than the oil preparation. And so even though there wasn't more THC in the decoction, because it got absorbed faster, and that is probably, you know, similar to to the um, in, inhalation, not that fast, but still faster. And that's probably why it produced a f- greater feeling of hunger and drowsiness. I'm just going to go back to THC. You can see there was no difference in the peak blood level, but it um, it uh, the time, oh no, it wasn't faster. So I'm wrong about that. THC did not get absorbed faster in the decoction. It was pretty much the same the time to the maximum level. So why there was more hunger and more drowsiness in the tea versus the oil? I have no idea. Really interesting findings, but I think we've got to start boiling some cannabis and testing it out ourselves. Serum concentrations of acidic precursors, THCA and CBDA were a hundred times higher than those of their decarboxylated counter compounds. So whether it's oil or decoction or tea, THCA and CBD have great bioavailability, much better than, than THC and CBD. Higher bioavailability of THC in the decoction was a surprise. THCA was equally present in both preparations and equally absorbed in the serums, no big difference on the THCA side. And then CBD and CBDA were better absorbed in decoction. CBD persisted in the systemic circulation for a longer time. Than that of THC, and that's something that we've known from other studies. CBD has a, a smaller, a longer half-life than THC. It gets eliminated from the body a little more slowly. And finally, preparation method did not affect the pharmacokinetics of THCA or THC metabolites. That I'm not talking about THCA metabolites because. We didn't test, they didn't test for any of those. And I haven't really seen many studies that have, but um, that 11 hydroxy THC and the THCA didn't seem to change one way or another uh, based on decoction versus oil. And that is the end of a very long slideshow for tonight. Thank you all for bearing with me. I hope it wasn't too much science. Uh, But there was a lot of, you know, so much, so many studies come out and trust me, it's hard. I I end up each month with like a folder of 20 and then I got to pick five or six for you all. Um, And so I I do my best, but I think that this, these were some great ones tonight. So let's start out um, with questions related to the content that we just described. Um, Whether it's a question or a comment or anyone, and I love the live ones. So if anyone uh, wants, you know, click the raise hand button or write it in the chat And we can, um, you know, we can certainly get you unmuted and I'd love to talk to you.
2: Who do we got? Yeah, Jackie had a question.
1: Let me just get
5: her unmuted. Okay, great. Hi, my Anya.
1: Yes, hi, Jackie.
5: Hi, Hi, thank you. This doesn't relate to the content tonight, but I had asked earlier if I could ask a
1: question. So hopefully- Go for it, please.
5: Okay, it relates to um, it's a cardiac question, and I know there have been data and studies on you know how it affects the heart, and, but I never I don't see much on AFib and how uh, cannabis, especially THC, might trigger or affect AFib. Um, I currently had an ablation, so I'm a little gun shy about starting cannabis again, but definitely want to for all the reasons you know mood, anxiety, sleep. Time, but i just any, mm-hmm. any data or opinions
1: yeah absolutely it's a great question i'm glad you asked it so cannabis can trigger arrhythmias it does not cause arrhythmias but it can trigger mm-hmm. them but it's almost always inhaled cannabis and mm-hmm. only going to be oral cannabis if it's a really severe overdose based on my experience and also based on what's out there in the literature um so for someone with a history of arrhythmia that's reluctant, I would just stay away from inhaled. And what we're basically talking about here is THC. So right. in, inhaled THC has a tendency to reduce blood pressure. And because of the onset is so rapid, when it does that, and let me, before I go on, I'll just say that it doesn't usually reduce blood pressure below normal. But it can if you smoke a lot faster, you smoke a lot and stand up or you're smoking in the hot tub and then you stand up. you know, there's off or you're dehydrated or whatever, your blood pressure is already low. You know, there's there's other factors. But when the blood pressure goes down, the heart rate has to go up. Mm -hmm. And so you get this kind of uh, autonomic nervous input to the heart saying, work harder, work Mm -hmm. faster. And that would be the signal that could trigger an arrhythmia. So for people with a history of arrhythmia that are on, you know, that are rate controlled or whatever, they're on beta blockers, or they've had an ablation, or they've had some kind of treatment that's been shown to be effective, most of them can do just fine with judiciously dosed inhaled cannabis. And certainly they can do fine with oral cannabis.
5: Okay. That is extremely helpful because I do oral and my dose is usually pretty like 2.5 THC is about my... Perfect. a A good point for me, but I just... You know, I didn't want to make, I didn't want to um, hinder my ablation success, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. or keep it from working or keep it, keep my heart from healing. So, yeah, that's very helpful.
1: And remember that like the heart and the brain have this incredible two way street. Mm-hmm. And so if you're feeling like you're, um, you know, functioning better, your mood is better, your outlook is more, you're more psychologically flexible, you're sleeping better. You know, these are all things that have a beneficial impact on the heart, too. And I, I like to always remember that. Thank, thank you, Jackie. You. Great question.
5: Thank you. Extremely helpful. Thank you.
1: And it looks like maybe Becca is next.
0: Yeah, there are a couple follow up questions to that previous one in the chat, if you wanted to just take a quick peek at that. Oh, okay, let's
1: you. see. Yes. Um Uh, As far as, how about someone with an artificial valve? I wouldn't expect any issues using cannabis with an artificial valve. And I have some, not several, but a handful of patients with artificial valves that are doing fine on cannabis. So what I also didn't mention um, in the conversation with Jackie is that cannabis has a protective effect on the heart. So it's been shown in humans that if you look at everybody that comes into the hospital with a heart attack, and you divide them into the cannabis users versus the non-users, the cannabis users are less likely to die. They're less likely to need some of the interventions. Uh, if you give it to animals, if you give THC at an incredibly low dose to rodents two hours before giving them a heart attack, they're less likely to have, damage. you know, the, the area of the damage is smaller, the healing is faster, there's less inflammation in the heart. So there is this cardioprotective effect. And so for people that have heart disease, I think appropriate use of cannabis um, can be helpful directly and indirectly, as we spoke about before. The other question was about, uh, I've read some regarding CBD and arrhythmias. Any precautions there? None that I'm aware of, but unlike you, I haven't read anything about CBD and arrhythmia. So I do need to check into that. One thing that people should know is that the anticoagulant drug warfarin or Coumadin which is being used less and less over time now uh, can have an interaction in particular with CBD. And that's a drug uh, where if you break it down too slowly because you're using CBD and the blood levels go up, you are at risk of bleeding. And so you don't want to do, you know, just about, so people that take warfarin can use cannabis. They just need to have a, a consistent cannabis regimen, get their blood level checked for something called INR and make sure that they don't need to adjust their dose of the warfarin after implementing cannabis all right i think i took care of those
2: all right becca's next thanks simone hi dr dustin
1: hello becca so
2: so that reminds me uh leafy greens with warfarin too you're you're supposed to moderate crazy just lower well, the warfarin and eat more leafy greens or smoke more cannabis or whatever. I don't know. Yeah.
1: Well, it goes the other way with the leafy greens you would need to raise the warfarin. But right. Well, I think yeah. this is still happening. But so leafy greens have vitamin K in it. And yeah. K is an antidote to warfarin. And so a lot of times doctors would say, oh, now you've got heart disease or whatever. Now you're on Coumadin. Uh, don't take any, don't eat any salads, don't eat any greens at all. Like what kind of terrible advice is that? Now, at least I think we're ready to say, eat the same amount of salad every day and have your INR check. Uh
2: Um, I'm fascinated that you are doing uh, ketamine therapy. And I I don't mean for you to educate uh, in in regard to the protocol, but what strikes me is that, you know, we always uh, wish for, Permanent outcomes. And the idea that the ketamine is good for one to seven days, and then what happens?
1: Yeah, great question. So, this is the low oral dose. Um, you know, uh, higher doses can be effective for much more than seven days. But what I've seen, and in, in, I'll just kind of paint the picture in a handful of really severely depressed suicidal patients, um, this is not what you would expect. But eventually they often get beyond seven days and now they're going two weeks in between each dose or three weeks in between each dose. And often when I eventually, Oh, they're stable. You know, well I'll talk to you in six months kind of a thing. This therapy is really working. Well, not six, it's usually three, but what quite often happens in patients that have this extending length of results with the ketamine is that when I talk to them, their depression's back. And I asked them, Well, when's the last time you took ketamine? And they say, Oh, it's been a couple months. I said, Well, why? Oh, I just forgot. I was feeling so good. I forgot to use it. And so there's this kind of opposite of what you would expect. This is an addictive substance. People are going to be using it more often and going out of control. I see the exact opposite. People many times forget to take it. But I don't know that the low oral dose is, I mean, I think it's partially transformational like cannabis. You know, people that are treating depression with either THC or CBD or both um, will see some improvement that I think can be sustained, but take the cannabis away from them. And probably some of them will have recurrence of their symptoms. It's not a long-term permanent solution where they stop taking cannabis and stay better. Even though I, I think that does happen sometimes, especially when there's, it's uh, you know, somewhat situational and cannabis can help them get through that situation and, you know, build new patterns in their life. Um, and so I think the ketamine is similar. I, I think it can provide long lasting relief. I think it can be somewhat transformational in terms of changing patterns uh, for the long haul. Not somewhat. I, I've definitely seen that. But I think the big pivots happen with the higher doses of ketamine, what, like psychedelic assisted therapy.
2: Very good. Thank you so much.
1: It's an incredibly useful tool. You're welcome, Becca. I'm glad you're interested in it. Like I, we have to, you know, those of us that love plant medicines, um you know it's it's important to suspend judgment on pharmaceuticals sometimes this is one that has a lot to offer on our species i'm convinced and i i I suspect that we're going to find out that cannabis is a great adjunct to it thank you okay now some people you know it's 8 20. i often say we're going to go till 8 30 but then we end up going till nine but one way or another um, some people submitted some questions ahead of time, and uh, I want to be considerate for them. And so let me just answer a couple of them. One came in from William asking about the efficacy of cannabis in benign essential blepharospasm. So this is a spasm of the eyelid, um, which can be extremely distracting and annoying for patients. I can only remember one patient that I've seen you know, with this condition, and I don't recall that cannabis helped. know i I think that we ended up doing um i don't remember the details but that that was my only experience i've never seen anything in the in the literature about blepharospasm and cannabis i think it's worth a try though um cannabis often helps with motor symptoms uh you know like spasm and things where other agents fail because of its ability to work on the cb1 receptors and that's kind of a novel mechanism of action so i would certainly try it But, you know, knowing me, I would get a little deeper. We need to know if this person's sleeping, if they've had a history of head injury, maybe they would benefit from cranial manipulation or addressing physical aspects. Like, you know, I have so many questions about blepharospasm, but I do think cannabis might be worth a try. Another question, interaction of cannabis with Humira, uh, which is um, an immune-modulating drug often used for uh, treating um, MS, sometimes Crohn's disease. No, I've had many patients take those treatments together and do well with the combination. Another question uh, from this time from Steve, what effect does CBD and CBDA have on the gut microbiome? I don't know. I have never seen that. THC has an effect on gut microbiome. I'm not sure about those two. And we'll do one more and then we'll get to some of these raised hands. I have someone in my hometown that is selling a CBD tincture that they claim has zero THC. They seem to be very proud of this because it is, the first thing they claim about the product. I was hoping you could explain if this is even possible and why this brand would be so thrilled about this promotion. I love the question, Tracy. That's so funny. So um, yeah, because they're saying like this product's going to be weaker and you're going to need to use more of it and and it's not going to work as well. But I think that it's probably targeted to people that uh, need to avoid THC for urine drug screen purpose. And it is certainly possible to molecularly isolate CBD from the THC, get, get all the THC out. Um, but as most of you who know my work know, that's not usually what I recommend because almost always the product is more effective even if it has just a touch of THC in it. The exception for that is that some people um, find that like kind of complex spectrum CBD products make them tired. not it's probably because of the thc but much more likely because of the terpenes and so these people that want to use cbd during the day but don't want to get tired from it can switch to a cbd isolate product and actually have really good results with that they might have to spend a little more money or take a little bit more uh, but but that's really the only patients that i recommend cbd isolate to all right uh, i'm looking at the chat i see bridget is t- talking about the decoction study has got me thinking uh, bridgetson Bridget Conry, an herbalist in Vermont, uh, who does some great work. So I'm glad I got you thinking, send me some of your ideas or your samples. Let's do some of the raised hands. All
2: right, let's go to Karen. Hello. Hello, Karen.
0: Hi, um, I'm wondering about the ketamine and using it with an SSRI.
1: Yeah. Uh, Totally compatible with SSRIs um, and very useful in helping people stop SSRIs. But I I will say that um, it doesn't necessarily mitigate the withdrawal effects from the SSRI. For that purpose, I use 5-HTP, 5-hydroxytryptophan, which is a precursor of serotonin. It's extracted from a bean and it's over the counter. It's very safe, very effective because a lot of the SSRIs, when people come off them, not only does their mood worsen but they get all sorts of other symptoms like twitching and brain zaps you know dizziness uh you you know all sorts of things and 5-htp is a way to naturally boost one's own serotonin levels and so i find that extremely useful but the ketamine is is um uh, really in about 70 percent of the cases providing an antidepressant effect that my patients claim is profoundly better than what the SSRI did for them. Because the SSRI was kind of keeping their lows from going too low, but it was also keeping their highs from going too high. And they kind of got this bland middle ground with loss of zest for life and uh, loss of libido and things like that. But the ketamine doesn't seem to do that. The ketamine is working more on the patterns of thought and behavior that were causing the depression. So let's back up for a minute. Um, You know, I think that so often we think about anxiety and depression and we, and we feel like, well, these are symptoms that are getting in the way of my life and I want to get rid of these symptoms. And what can I do to get rid of these symptoms? Maybe it's a drug or maybe it's a treatment or maybe it's just exercise or whatever. But I like to reframe that a little bit because I think often depression and anxiety are our friends. They are there to remediate our life because if we're living a life where every day is full of activities and behaviors, that are not congruent with our highest values as an individual, then we should be anxious and depressed. And hopefully that anxiety and depression is going to nudge us enough to get us to change our life so that we can you know, figure out who the hell am I and how can I be more of myself every day? How can I do the work that I'm supposed to do? So I think often anxiety and depression, uh, especially in the right framework and in, uh, with the right resources, can be the very driving force of helping someone be better, you know, like feel better, make a better contribution to the world, leave that crappy job that they hate, uh, find something better for them to do, you know, get out of that dysfunctional relationship, whatever, be it, be a um, catalyst for change. So I like to frame it that way. It's not always about erasing anxiety and depression, but you know, when it comes down to it, people come into the office or come into the dispensary or the clinic and they're suffering and they want relief from their suffering. And I think that's a very valid thing to offer as well.
0: Thank you. I, I agree a hundred percent. And I, I took those actions many years ago. <laughs> and just real quick, what was the supplement again, you said?
1: It's called 5-HTP. Um, you can read about it in my book. So in, in, the, in the book, there's a section on adjuncts to cannabis where I talk about that. I talk about um, kratom which is a an herbal opioid replacement and uh tulsi is in there holy basil so check that out it's, it's a good section but 5-htp very useful agent thank well, you to, thank
0: you so much
1: i meant to send it to everyone but i didn't let me type it again 5-htp and it's usually like 100 to 300 milligrams um, but you can read more about it in the book really safe nice supplement it's in um there's a section in the book about how to improve access and efficacy and so we talk about synthetic cannabinoids herbal adjuncts to cannabis and things like that all right who's next
2: Uh, let's go have donna next okay
1: can you hear me yes hello donna
2: hi um
3: I had a question that um, I've been having nausea for a long time and sleep problems. I have restless leg. I have (laughs) palpitations. I have, um, and nausea, which is enough. Um, And I started using your CBDA and I'm doing five drops. And uh, during the day I started it, and now i'm trying it at night but i'm i think it's helping with the sleep a bit um but the nausea not yet now i don't i haven't really increased so and i do have an appointment with you on the 22nd and i can't wait oh great
1: um, well we'll get started now a little bit okay great <laughs> great so um, one strange suggestion that i have for you just to try before our appointment would um be to because there's some rodent studies that have shown that incredibly low doses of CBDA are effective for nausea. And since right. you have the CBDA in hand, I wonder what would happen if you took just one drop. Uh, you know, I don't expect something profound, but I think it's worth exploring that before going up to 10 or 15 milligrams. But it certainly is possible that increasing the dose could help as well. Now on the restless legs um it's typically thc that works very well for that and in some patients uh taking it orally at a, a very modest dose can be helpful but in some people it's really the in the route of inhalation that does the most so there's your initial console no I, I still have more we're going to do some good work together. Please, please okay. come for your visit. But that's, that's just kind of the basics. Restless legs. I've seen so many cases of restless legs that have been, have uh, yeah, that have been, you know, not affected by the kind of conventional dopamine agonists and, um, you know, people on benzodiazepines trying to treat it and, and get to sleep. And uh, a little bit of inhaled THC can be a miracle.
3: I was taking a chewable THC, Calm it was called, and it had five, only five milligrams. And I had told you that last time you said it shouldn't make you have palpitations, but I do. Um, And I had everything checked, blood work, and it was fine. So I I don't know if I'm not a candidate for THC or if chewable is not the way to go
1: interesting yeah that's well uh, there's still some things to try there yeah but so let's because we talked about arrhythmia so five you said five milligrams of thc chewable did what um what what kind of arrhythmia or what was going on
3: i have palpitations all the time but i have thyroid issues too so whether it's from my thyroid i don't know
1: yeah hyperthyroid can disturb sleep and it can cause nausea Um, really but so there's some, some things to think about there, but yeah, well, let's let's have another chat sometime. Thank you Great. for sharing though. <laughs> Thank you. Okay.
2: Alex is next.
6: Yeah. Go ahead. And uh-huh. video start. There Everybody. you are. Stay yet, I am I, all right. Good evening Dustin, good evening everyone i wanted to give some feedback on the guidelines or recommendations rather from the consensus and i think it's a great initiative it's so pleasant to see things like that already being published and uh, thought of and uh, thought through the only thing that uh, kind of couple of things that i was uh, a little not i wouldn't say puzzled with but uh having a bit of difficulty envisioning uh, these recommendations going into practice and actually applying to the majority of patients. Yes, it was so thoughtful uh, by the authors to separate that into routine protocol with versus conservative versus uh, rapid. Um, situations are different. But on the other hand, uh, looking through all these uh, numbers and recommendations, I am thinking that it is fair, at least from my assessment, to Call what is what's called routine and conservative to call both of them conservative. So that exactly. would apply. Destiny that, said that there were some things that you uh, disagreed with, uh, with the consensus uh, total, you know, the uh, experts of uh, 20 people and uh, great minds combined. Uh, but on the other hand, you see the practical experience, at least in my observation, with five years of medical cannabis treatment and research and nothing else but it. Uh, uh, I would I would summarize that those two being both conservative because uh, with THC being introduced, maybe. Oh, let me see. Am I still? Oh, yeah, you're back. Yeah, we just missed a word or two. Oh, no worries. So the, the reason what I'm thinking is that why both routine and conservative would be applicable to call conservative is that uh, when, when THC is introduced for patients with chronic pain on day 10, effectively, I think, and once the CBD is already in 40 milligrams per day or more, um, I think starting with THC from day one or very close to day one and starting with THC even in small and very conservative doses, but in the after hours, meaning starting from the evening dose rather than from the daytime dose. And then gradually increasing THC uh, with with gradual titration on a daily basis. I think a nightly basis. That's when I think people will have more impact on their pain, more satisfaction. And it's also in human psychology that people are looking for instant gratification. So when they know THC is there and the patients and people know that it's helping with pain, but also with sleep, with muscle spasms, inflammation control, and not to be forgotten, the very THC specific effect of putting pain into a different perspective in a different room. So you, I don't think patients would choose to miss on that for the next, let's say 10 days. Chances are, even if the doctors suggest suggests such recommendation to the patient, chances are they will start with THC. And I think it is fair for them to know that this is a helpful, very helpful molecule upfront at the right time of the day and with gradual titration, Sleep that is restored can go a long way. Yes. But you know, Dustin, that uh, THC and CBD both can help with spasms. There is enough of evidence that THC might be even more potent in regard to spasms. And then many other things uh, that come in mind. And uh, another thing that I wanted to consider with that is uh, to at least convey my thoughts uh, this uh, the rapid protocol so with that one one-to-one ratio is a i think is a very solid starting point for patients who need rapid protocol but even that i think would apply more so to the after i mean evening dose so patients who are let's say fully retired or can take a break from work and then utilize one-to-one ratio uh from even the day use great if they're in a lot of pain and they need that why not but then to expect them to uh, take one-to-one ratio and then drive to work and be productive at work, um, I, I don't see that uh, being um, very applicable to, to those patients. And then another thing that I think there is room for improvement with, at least from my uh, humble perspective, is that uh, two times a day medicine for the two protocols and then, Uh, one to two times a day for the rapid protocol i think it goes kind of not necessarily with data on pharmacokinetics. you picked it up
1: you picked it up alex trust me i'm glad you weren't part of that consensus because you would have been pulling your hair out like i was um it was it was challenging you know i think um, and, and I want to—I've got a question for you, which I'm going to ask now, and then make a comment before you answer it. Is I'm wondering if the CBD survey and the CBD retrospective data in chronic pain patients—you uh, know—how that landed with you after having all these thoughts when I was presenting the consensus statement. While we were going through that process, which was supposed to be in person in Montreal and ended up being over Zoom because it was right when the COVID thing happened, I was getting ready for a nice drive from Maine to Montreal. Um, you know, it it seemed like there was a lot of consideration around how will this land with the readers? Like, imagine your audience, a primary care doc that's never recommended cannabis before. What are they going to want to read? What are they going to want to hear? What are we going to want to tell them? And I, you know, was just want, like, these are real doctors. They know how to deal with drugs. Let's tell them the freaking truth and uh, not waste patients time. Um, But but I think that that was one of them, and and then the pharmacokinetic thing also, like the one, like it should have been three times daily. I was really really pushing for adding THC at night in the routine treatment to anyone that's not sleeping well. That should be done on day one. In fact, as you know, if you do that on day one, sometimes you don't even need a daytime treatment. You just treat them at night, and the next day is better. Um, But it was seventy five percent consensus required, and we couldn't get there. So. Mm Yeah, challenging. I'm glad you weren't there, though. it was It was a, a bit challenging. At least there were a couple others in the in the group that I could like send texts to with like exclaim you know exclamations of my frustration. But it it turned out decent, not great, but decent. So tell me about your thoughts on these other two uh, CBD data that came up
6: I think it's a great starting point with the consensus, and it's a great initiative. Uh, so with uh, uh, CBD, if you're referring to that particular study from uh, today's
1: presentation. Um, Yeah, like, were you surprised that so many people said CBD was helping them? Oh, not at all. I think
6: CBD overall is uh, one of the greatest molecules of cannabis. And it is uh, neither THC nor CBD are by far the only molecules of cannabis. And it is important for uh, not only patients, but also providers to realize that it's not only about them. Like you said, THCA, CBDA, and that list goes on and on, CBG and its effects on pain uh, and inflammation, CBC. So for example, a patient with a a dramatic transformation in our practice uh, with a healthcare professional with CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome, uh, who was debilitated by this condition. And then seeing patients transform and then go back to ballroom dancing, enjoying life again, and then one pa- one time, patient said, "You know, doctor, when I followed your advice and then uh, experimented with this and this and this and uh, gave it a try, I found, in my experience, that CBG is what the what ma- is what made the biggest difference in the end. So it just goes along to say how important other molecules are. It is very important also to to build the foundation first that I do educate patients every day on that it doesn't make a lot of sense and trying to." built, let's say, I don't know, something on the third level when there is no foundation. So focus on the elephants first, CBD and THC, proper ratios, prop for the proper time of the day, uh, gradual tit- titration. On a daily basis, I think is fair when you go start low, go slow, rather than wait for two to three days when you already know that you're in pain and even still in pain on day two, potentially, or day three, potentially with no difference in pain levels yet. So I think it is fair to gradually but daily titrate in the dose and keep in the journal, medical cannabis journal, to eventually see, aha, uh-huh, so at that ratio, that was the perfect perfect combo for the daytime use and this is the perfect combo for the midday, which I would expect it to be the same as the daytime since most people are at work by that, by that time still. They do need to make sure that it's not making them sleepy or altered or... Uh, Change their judgments, so that is only good options for the after hours, and then uh, uh, respectively uh, balanced options or THC dominant, depending on what they prefer in the after hours, and then with three times a day schedule, unless it's an extended release product. So it is something that is available in the state of Connecticut, thankfully so, because I do I do appreciate the fact that patients can limit it to just two times a day and get to their results.
1: With and that's them. an extended release capsule
6: or something like a, that? The extended release tablet that is available oh. in Connecticut with CBD okay. and CHC as an option. And nice. a very, very helpful option. Uh, but even as you were in the study with Epidiolex. So yes, FDA approved CBD only oil extract and starting dose for babies and little children from 250 milligrams twice a day for seizure purposes. Starting dose and rapid escalation of the dose to the ultimate of a 3500 as they uh, dose when they recommend to start. So yep. when it's in those kind of doses, I do foresee that potentially being just good for two times a day. But when it's sure. starting from 2.5 and up, chances are it will need to be three times a day with gradual penetration.
1: Thank you, Alex. Well, I'm glad I'm not alone in in my thinking and in my clinical observations. So maybe I wish that you were part of that consensus if we could have tipped the scales to 75, but I don't think we were that close. Uh, But thank you so much for your comments. Let's move on to Mary, who's been waiting patiently.
0: Okay. Um, hi, Dustin. Uh, thank you so much for all of your work. Um, I'm a psychotherapist and uh, I appreciate your review of community research tonight. Um, and I've been looking for like the right psychedelic t- trauma training. Um, I, I recently took the healer, tra- er, the healer training and then I was looking at the PSIP um, training with Sajrazi and he showed me a testimonial that you had recorded for that, which was very comforting to me because I really trust your work. Um, I, and I, if this question puts you on the spot, please feel free to just wave me off. But um, since I never know what's been edited out of a testimonial, I was just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on like the strengths and weaknesses of that program, if you're comfortable. Yeah. With
1: I will okay. So, um, uh, PSIP psychedelic somatic integration, Peace. <laughs> anyways, <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, it- it- wonderful. I I haven't seen the promo video that he recorded of me, so I'm curious about how he edited it. But I thought it was an incredible program. If okay. I wasn't so busy, it would become the focus of my practice. I, I fully loved it and appreciate it. I'm planning to have him on. For a webinar soon and so i don't want to spoil it all but, okay. um someone who knows almost nothing about cannabis was able to show me a side of cannabis that just knocked my socks off i mean it was just incredible um the amount of personal healing that i experienced during that training what i witnessed in other people this is a um you know it's um, a, a protocol basically of using cannabis in combination with a somatic approach to psychotherapy so this is saying oh maybe we can help people heal trauma not just by using their traumatized brain to do the healing doesn't that make sense you know but maybe we could use their entire being including their body uh, yeah. to be involved in the healing and it's very simple and cannabis um, really um, accelerates this modality okay. I loved it I thought it was okay. profound uh, it requires a lot so it, it, for someone to take that training, um, you know, be ready for it to kind of take over your career if you allow it to. The, the training is, the training is intensive five days, but then there's this supervision period, which I personally dropped out of. It's a it's a six week, I mean a six month period in which you're required to do a lot of trades with the other people in your course. And mm-hmm. I've been wanting to, but my schedule is just too full to do this. And then the trade off for me is. Um, you know, it might, how busy I am, the supply and demand for my time and my rates, these are like good two-hour sessions. And I didn't see a lot of people being able to afford regular two-hour sessions with me. This would be like every week or or so for 12 weeks. So I didn't really see that happening anyways. But that that is the protocol. This is profound work. I encourage anyone to check out the website i don't know if uh, when we're done talking if you can post it or or mary was the video on the website or where would you see Um, the video
0: it was like on the vimeo it was i had mentioned taking the healer training in my application and in his response email he just sort of was like oh dustin just you know took the training and and he sent me like a link to the testimonial i'm not sure if it's publicly on the website or not
1: will you send it to uh (laughs) info at healer.com and they'll they'll pass it on to me i want to take a look at it but yes Cannabis is incredible. I just don't want to um, give too much away because I, maybe even the next webinar will have Sajan and, and uh, expose you all to this incredible side of cannabis. That's great.
0: Okay. Thanks so much. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. So we have a few more questions, Justin. Okay, let's do it. While you're unmuting someone, I'm just going to go to the spreadsheet real quick because we almost finished that. I like finishing it. What are the most effective strategies for using cannabis to taper off benzos like clonopin? So the answer is that you can leave the clonopin alone and add cannabis until you either get a really like good control over the anxiety if clonopin wasn't doing that at the current dose, or until you start feeling like there's too much of a drug effect. So go up on the cannabis, get some mild side effects. Like I'm feeling too stoned or kind of drunk or too tired. And then once you reach that level, you can start slowly backing down on the clonopin with the supervision of whoever's prescribing it. Because if you're on a high dose of clonopin and you stop abruptly, it can be dangerous. So don't do that. Even though cannabis can mitigate some of those dangers of stopping it abruptly. And I've seen it do that many times, but Um, still talk to the person who's prescribing it and make sure that you're going down, that you're tapering slow enough, but unlike so many other strategies where you would have to like down the clonopin and then add something else, you don't have to, you can use them together. Okay. Who's next? Sergio is next.
7: Hi, hello. Um, I hope you, you can see me. uh, first. Okay.
1: Yes, I can see you.
7: Thank you so much, Dustin, for this yeah. beautiful book. I'm learning a lot with it. Um, it's beautiful. I'm learning too much, and I'm sharing the, the voice with my friends. They are buying your book. So, congratulations. It's a really, really good book. So, my question uh, goes linked with the previous question actually psychotherapy assisted with cannabis. All right. Mm. Um I am not very aware of that field, and I would like to receive some information, what kind of treatments you can receive, which doses, what is the protocol, if it is cognitive behavioral therapy under the influence of cannabinoids, or is there any other kind of pathway to relieve the relieve the, the trauma, PTSD, things like that?
1: Yeah. Great question. And so I see that we've got Lonnie on here tonight. Just about a month ago, I had a good conversation with him about his experience with this topic because, you know, I'm not doing a lot of uh, like conventional psychotherapy, but of course, that happens to some extent in the clinic. What I will say is that I, I believe that cannabis provides an increased cognitive flexibility. And so it's probably especially useful in people that seem really rigid and stuck. And if you're like working with the tools that you have and you're kind of coming up in one of these stuck loops and not really getting anywhere because of that rigidity, uh, doing some typically inhaled uh, THC or balanced THC CBD cannabis, uh, not a high dose, but probably just enough might facilitate that a little bit. But I would love to unmute Lonnie. Uh, so, so that's my response. And then the other thing before Lonnie comments is that um, life is therapy, You know, and I think that people that aren't in psychotherapy that are still using cannabis uh, have this benefit also where they can uh, kind of be presented with the challenges of life and respond to them with greater flexibility and 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 then have some kind of a change in patterns. But, um, yeah, Lonnie, how would you have answered that question?
4: I absolutely love the question and thank you for having me on. Um, One of the things that crossed my mind was uh, every week I have a client that comes to see me. And while he's waiting in his car, he smokes a joint. So when he comes in here, we talk. And this is a man who throughout his life has been very rigid in the way he's approached life to the point where the crisis that brought him in, it wasn't the pain or the PTSD. It was a uh, altercation that led him to get arrested. So in terms of what we've dealt with, this is like catastrophic life change for him. So the question about the type of therapy I really don't think it matters, to be quite honest. I think whatever the clinician is good at, you know, I, I am a person who has tried lots of different therapeutic approaches in 30 years. And last year I worked with a friend of ours, uh, Michelle Weiner, and uh, was working with her using low-dose ketamine. And the trochees I found at about 100 to 150 milligrams, depending on the patient, was a really interesting way of getting past their ego. It helped to dissolve the ego enough to teach them things. and I was using biofeedback in that modality. It was wonderful. We were using cognitive behavior therapy and biofeedback and uh, you know relaxation, things like that. We didn't get into any of the somatic stuff. but now that I'm working with the cannabis assisted therapy, this is something that's very similar to the approach with the low dose ketamine. So I think as you add, that therapeutic effect, what you're getting is the person open-minded to what you're working with. They can get the insights. You as the clinician get those insights to then take in the non-chemical-assisted sessions and integrate them for the person. Sometimes it's one session. Sometimes it's just that glimpse of, oh, that's what it is. Um, Does that answer the question?
7: That answers the question, but Uh, I also have more questions, because in the the physiological point of view, cannabis acts in the amygdala-hypothalamus link consolidating memories, right? So uh, after trauma, some of the memories, they get consolidated, they get fixed in there, and they can come back in life uh, because of a trauma. I wonder if high doses of cannabis could Come back to the past and heal those traumas that are kind of um, innervated in the brain somehow? Maybe it's a weird question, but. Um, yeah,
1: no, it's a great question. You got to read chapter whatever of that book. In the trauma chapter, I cover that. So there's been a couple studies in humans that have shown that both THC and CBD can uh, promote extinction of fear memories. And, um, like uh, change the consolidation, you know, b- basically like uh, promote, uh, let me let me try to get this right. I think that there was some evidence from animal studies that if administered after the trauma, there's less consolidation of that traumatic memory. Yeah. but also if administered either before or strangely after the extinction process. So that would be like a you know, a analog of a therapeutic session um if if administered after that extinction, then they're more likely to remain extinct, the memories and and not recur. so yeah, i think I think especially in trauma therapy I will say that what I learned from the p s i p model uh, very first hand and uh, you know it, and I was able to observe so clearly is that. People that have gone through severe trauma and severe doesn't necessarily mean severe based on what it looks like from the outside, it's really only about what it looks like from the inside. Um, but that t- the healing often, but not always, requires them to go to a place that's very uncomfortable that like no one would choose to go back there. Um, and so, you know, how do we help them go there? So a therapeutic setting, a nice container, a lot of rapport, support, skills building leading up to that, like all these other things can be helpful. Um, and sometimes cannabis just kicks them in the butt and sends them right there. <laughs> you know, they don't have a choice uh, sometimes. And that's um, in the wrong setting. That's when the people say, every time I take a puff, even if it's just one puff, I start to get an anxiety attack. And, you know, for a long time, my for years, my answer to that has been, well, Uh, probably there's something for you to deal with there that cannabis is trying to show you. And I say that, especially to the people who have been like, yeah, I've used cannabis for a decade and it's never done this to me before. Now, every time I smoke, I'm freaking out. Well, maybe now you're ready to freak out and we can get you through that freak out. Um, So cannabis can really take people out of this dissociated state and put them right back into uh, a trauma-like state. Whereas, you know, you brought up the ketamine, Lonnie, that's, that's, Oh, so useful, but so different. That's like, oh, we can go there, but I'm just there floating on a cloud. I'm not really down there where the trauma is happening. I'm just visiting, you know, in a pleasant way. And that's nice too.
4: You're an observer, is what's happening. You're able to. So, this is the difference that I found in my research. When you take an antidepressant, it basically suppresses our memories and, and our emotional reactions of what's going on. But psychedelics and cannabis being on that spectrum, I mean, full on, it brings it. So if you're, you know, needing to deal with something and you have the proper set setting and intention, you're going to get your mind right there. And this is where the work is done by facing it, gaining the insights, and then working through it. And you know, using low doses is something that I found is something that can be effective with clients. When you have that suppression of that anxiety response, and this is where CBD can be a wonderful adjunct to people that don't want to use THC. So really, I found that all aspects of the plant are comative, and it facilitates the psychotherapeutic interaction.
7: And the actions are better in an acute uh, treatment or chronic t- treatment, in your experience. I'm sorry, what was the question again? The The, the treatment works better in an acute uh, dose uh, and therapy assisted or chronic treatments?
4: I've found that very similar to the uh, use of the uh, psychedelics. If you do a session that's assisted to have um, integrative sessions afterwards, and really it's determined by what you get out of that assisted session as to how many of the uh, assisted sessions you'd need. But I I don't do them all the time. I found that this gentleman that comes over, when he uh, comes to the office, he is smoking. So his ego is suppressed. And he's able to work with me in psychotherapy to hear things that go against his very um, extreme views uh, by history. He's a gun-carrying person and so on and so forth. So, you know, you understand I'm, I'm able to get through to the person without the ego squashing it. And that's the beauty. This is where the integration, I think, is really the, the key. The, the chemical is a tool to suppress the ego. And I love cannabis for this because it's a gentle way for people to get involved. It's something that doesn't scare them. Like ketamine, that, that word tends to scare some of my patients or psychedelics. So cannabis is a nice bridge to that. But it actually can be the end point for some of the patients in my
1: experience. <clears throat> I would also suggest that um, don't expect cannabis to have the same effect every time, right? Same client coming in each time, cannabis might do something different to them because it's really not the cannabis. Like, remember, one of the main ways that the CB1 receptor works is by suppressing activity. So it's, uh, you know, it's allowing some of these overactive areas of the brain that are getting in their way to simmer down. And then it's what comes up. It's not cannabis that brings that up. It's the health that brings that up. It's the innate wisdom of their healing system that's going to show them what they're ready for today. And I think sometimes it, it might make them freak out and sometimes it might just make them smile and not a lot. You know, it, it could be vastly different, but great question. Great topic. Oh, hopefully a preview to next time, because I I do, I am sitting on some papers on cannabis and spirituality and, and some other things like that. So it might be great for the next webinar to have sage. On and get get a great conversation like this going. It is eight fifty eight. i'm I'm looking at the chat, and there are some beautiful comments there. So let me um do a little wrap up because some people have asked about my book. I think there was a link pointed to that, but you can just search for me on Amazon or any bookseller, and you'll find it. Thank you in advance. For those of you that are not part of the Healer training curriculum, If you enjoyed the program tonight, which I definitely did, and you want to give something back in exchange for what you received, consider buying one of our products. You can order CBD products from healercbd.com. They make a great gift. You could buy the book. Um, You could join the training program because that's going to be an exchange that I think you'll find very valuable. Uh, And, again, there's a discount. It's just the, the code WEBINAR tonight, you get $50 off. Also, if you use Labor Day and buying a product, you get 30% off. Uh, so consider all of those. What else do I have? Um, I, I didn't get through all the previously submitted questions, but we came really close tonight. I apologize for those of you Oh, it looks like the only one I missed was like a pretty specific clinical question that I think would be better for an education consult. I am, you know, I am pretty busy in the clinic here, but for people that aren't in Maine, I am able to do educational consults where I kind of take the case and provide information to the individual and to their local healthcare practitioner. So if you really feel like you need my specific advice, um, I am available to you. But you'll see that by going through the, the training curriculum online, I think you're going to be able to do most of this on your own. I really want to empower you to not have to rely on me. I love this community. I love the sharing that's going on in the chat and the good vibes. You are all welcome next month. I love you all, and I, I hope to see you then. Good night. Good night. Good
2: night. Recording stop.